Hello, and welcome to Laidback Lush. I'm Michael. I am Gabe. And today we are going to be talking about our favorite aquavite or water of life, whiskey. But before we do, we wanted to clear up a couple of things from one of our last episodes. Correct. So... Last episode, we covered VDNs, or Vin du Natural, which, if you remember, is a fortified wine out of France. They are sweet. They can be from a variety of places and made with a variety of grapes. I, admittedly, butchered that whole section. I don't know if you guys could tell, but that was uh, highly edited down to try and make it as uh, accurate as possible, but it's I still couldn't quite salvage it. So something I wanted to clarify is that Rutherglen Muscat's are not VDNs because they are not from France. It is a French classification of fortified wines. However, the Muscat Bomes de Venise that we talked about is a VDN. There are several kinds that we could have talked about, but that one is kind of uh, one of the more popular styles. So that's why I chose that one in particular to talk about. But that is mainly what I wanted to say for that. Just know that Rutherglen Muscats, yes, they are fortified Muscats. Yes, they are still sweet, but they are not VDN wines. Alrighty. So now that we've gotten that cleared up, and hopefully you guys will appreciate the fact that we do go back and try to correct ourselves when we do mess things up, uh, we wanted to get into whiskey by first talking a little bit about the history of distillation. Mm -hmm. It was thought to have originated in China. We know that Aristotle in the 4th century BC, as well as Alexander of Aphrodisia in 100 AD, described uh aphrodisia yeah aphrodisias that's 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 a place spicy yeah that's i mean you definitely know they were making alcohol there um but both of them described the process of distilling as a way of desalinization of seawater and mentioned the fact that it could be used for wine and then you eventually had people in china mesopotamia all these different places including egypt using it in order to make perfumes yeah so uh as far back as I think it was like 1810 BC, so quite a good time before now, you had stuff coming out of Mesopotamia. Eventually, this led to some stuff that was going on in the Middle East right around that kind of transitional point between BC and AD, where the Romans were actually employing alchemists to try and make gold out of different metals using distilled spirits. And as we know, they succeeded. And yes, <laughs> which is why everything's made of gold now. <laughs> uh, this also ended up gaining popularity uh, in Turkey and in Egypt itself until we had the invention of our first pot stills, mm -hmm. which are the vessels used for the distillation process. You also had people in China making soju out of it. Eventually, this started going all over the world. You had the mostly the Christian nations were distributing the technologies found in the Middle East, especially in Turkey. You had Germany, Palenka from Hungary. You had cognac from France, tequila from Mexico, aguardente coming out of Portugal, and of course, rum from Barbados, and finally, whiskey from Scotland and Ireland. The techniques were thought to be introduced there between 1100 and 1300 AD, but because they didn't have wine, they thought, well, hey, let's try and use your barley beer. Yeah. So the first written accounts that we have are from the Irish Annals of Clannamac Noise, and then the second was from the Exchequer Rolls of 1494, where King James actually uh, the fourth is granting a bunch of malt to a one Friar John Cor to make aquavitae. Mm -hmm. All of this comes together into what we know now. It's been distributed, this style of distilling barley and various other types of malts in order to create things like bourbon and now Japanese whiskey, which is what we are sipping on right now. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of regions around the world that are starting to get into whiskey production, even outside of Japan, which Japan is relatively speaking very new but even i think south africa is starting to pick up some whiskey production oh, india me. is starting to do some whiskey production if i remember correctly oh that sounds yeah fascinating i yeah. i would love to try that from there because one of the things that is a major influence in whiskey production is just simply water and climate so anything that is in the air anything that is in the water ends up getting into the flavor which is what we're going to be talking about the main components of whiskey are going to be the water the grain and the yeast mm-hmm the water really seems to be where a lot of focus is put in. I know that you have mentioned this several times throughout our, our sake episode. Yeah. Especially 
uh, our beer episode, obviously, which a lot of commonalities can be found between the process of beer production mm -hmm. and the process of whiskey distillation. Yeah, if you listen to that episode, this episode might uh, sound a little familiar in a lot of places. Yeah. So let's let's get started on that, though. What is the first couple of steps, which is also quite shared with beer production? Well, I guess probably the most common uh, trait between them is everything up until the distillation method. So if you remember from beer episode, whiskey, as well as beer, is made with grains. For whiskey production, barley is going to be kind of the star grain of all whiskey production for the reason that barley tends to have a very high enzymatic profile. So a beta and alpha amylase, that's going to be kind of like just a lot more concentrated inside of barley? Uh, I don't know the exact molecules per se, but uh, I do know barley. It, it has a very dense concentration of enzymes in it. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes it one of the principal grains in whiskey production. Now, depending on where you're at in the world, the other ones tend to be most commonly wheat maize and corn and that would make the resulting compound just a lot more efficient at breaking down those starches into the sugars yeah kind of going back to barley even if you have a a grain whiskey which a grain whiskey is a whiskey that can have more than one grain in the blend mm. typically barley will be included to some degree even outside of scotch and irish whiskey production where barley tends to be mandated you still will typically see some barley in there just to, again, up that enzymatic profile so that way you are fully able to break all these starches down in your other grains to fermentable sugars once mm -hmm. it goes into fermentation. So that being said, how is all of this done? How do we get from start to finish? You have to make your malt first. You have to malt a grain. What does malting grain mean? It means that you start the germination process in a grain. Again, this is very often going to be barley. You can do it with other grains as well. Again, barley is kind of a primary one here. And what that does is when these grains start to germinate, it does create a, a different physiological process in the grain where things start to break down a little bit because that seed thinks that it's about to start growing into a plant. Some of the cell walls start to break down a little the bit. The husk breaks down. The husk breaks down, yeah. And these enzymes that are locked away in the endosperm and these starches start to change a little bit. They start to activate. And it releases all of this to be available for your mashing. But before we get to mashing, you then need to kiln these grains mm. which is the process of heating them up if you're familiar with kilning at all you know it's just putting something in a very hot oven basically yeah which the the ones that they use specifically in scotland and ireland it's like an entire like it's an apparatus it's it's a huge thing <laughs> yeah some of the ones that i've seen it was like an entire building an entire mm -hmm. structure where the top floor is the kilning floor and then you had the actual kiln underneath yeah these are typically multi-level a large part of that is so for for scotch you can peat your scotch oh during the kilning process that's yes so that's when peating happens if peating is happening in a whiskey if you don't know what peat is peat is decayed plant matter mm -hmm. taken from a bog essentially yeah real fun to walk on it's <laughs> yeah <laughs> a little little squelchy yeah <laughs> it's used to impart a very particular flavor if you've ever had a peated whiskey one that i really like yes i personally love peated whiskeys uh if you've ever had one you know that you've had one if you've had lafroig you have had a, a peated whiskey they tend to go very heavy on peat for lafroig this process happens during kilning it's it's burned typically early on so that way the most amount of phenols will grip to the wet surface mm. of the grains that are being kilned and that kind of locks in the flavor as they're dried. So, so let me get this straight. You have your your malt, mm -hmm. and it's it's up there, and it's kilning. We've halted the process of germination, yeah, so that it's it's sprouted, but it's not growing yet. Correct. And we're trying to dry it out. And now, we're trying so to dry it out. It'll stay in that state. 
So this is where you have kind of your more malty flavors coming in. Mm -hmm. But also if we toss in this peat early on, because you have that moisture sweating out, that's what the polyphenols are going to be. They're going to stick to it. They're going to stick to it. And so that's how we get that flavor. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Yep. This is the step where peat happens. Uh, But like you just said, the, the process overall... Peating does not happen in all whiskeys, just to be clear. Most whiskeys are not peated. That's kind of something very unique to scotch. And I know some Japanese producers, I think, actually peat their whiskeys, which makes sense if you know the history of Japanese whiskey, which we'll get into later on in the episode, actually. But this process primarily is to stop the germination process and to dry out your malt. So once we've, we've dried out the malt and we have this resulting product, much like the beer process, they're going to be putting it into a vat of water that they're going to be boiling Mm -hmm. but there is one step before that Mm. you need to grind it grind it yes you have to grind the grist yes and this is where what is called if you remember again from our beer episode your mash bill is what it's most commonly referred to sometimes your grist bill yeah will come into play that again is the combination of grains that is going into your whiskey If it's a single malt, there's only one grain going into that whiskey. But if it's a grain blend, this is where that ratio starts to come into play. So that is ground up into what is called grist. And then the grist will, like you just said, be put put into into a mash tun with hot water. The hot water activates all these enzymes. They start breaking down those starches into sugars. Yep. And... Then after, what is it, like a half hour, it gets drained out. Yeah, it's not a very long process. It can vary a little bit uh, based off of the profile they're going for. Mainly the temperature of the water, actually, is I think what's going to be changing a lot of the profile there. But yeah, it's not a very long process. So, And I know they do this three times, Uh heating up the water hotter and hotter every single time. Correct. What is actually the purpose of that third time? The third time is to just kind of get any additional residue out of the draft the draft is what's going to be left over because your wort which is what this process will create where it gets really sticky and sugary because all these starches are being broken down into sugars that gets drained off and there is some residue and so this final wash will just kind of get anything that can be taken out out and that at least in scotch production, I don't know if this is for all whiskey production. As far as I know, I believe it is. It actually is cooled down, and then that is what does the first wash for the next set of mash that you do. I see. And I guess that they don't have to be worried as much about watering it down at this stage because they're going to be distilling it anyway. They exactly. just need to extract as much yeah. as possible. So that's the, the water used for this. It typically uh, in modern facilities, it might be UV filtered just to kill off any microbes that might spoil something. But the water typically isn't even really heavily treated in Scotland. The local drinking water laws actually don't even apply. Obviously, you need a fresh water source, so a lot of people do use springs and whatnot. But again, because you're distilling it, you don't really have to worry about what is in the water at this point. It doesn't need to be like distilled water where there's where there's nothing coming in. Obviously, you want good water. Again, because it's being distilled and so many of these molecules that you don't want aren't going to end up, which we'll get into in a second in the final new make spirit anyway, it doesn't matter too, too much what dilution or whatnot might happen during this process. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, though. And this kind of seems to be our first fundamental difference between how beer is brewed and and how whiskey is made, because we see that the concentration is not something that is being considered. Correct. So once we have this sugary liquid that is extracted as much as possible out of this mash, this this uh, grist, you then have to cool it down. Yeah. And it's placed into uh, what I, it's called. Washback. Washback. Yes. That was what it was called. So it's our fermentation tank, uh-huh. which is where we're going to start introducing the yeast to it. Yes. And that is part of why you need to cool the wort down. You also need to cool it down because if it's too hot for too long, it'll denature the enzymes that are converting all that starch into sugar. And you do want all of that starch converted into sugar as much as you can help. So cooling it down serves a double effect because, again, if you remember from last episode, we mentioned too hot kills yeast Mm -hmm. temperature-wise, so you do need to cool it down for the yeast as well. 
So once we have it cooled down and we have this yeast introduced, it takes about four days for it to fully react mm-hmm. until it starts killing itself off because the concentration is, is too high. Mm-hmm. The concentration is typically going to be between 8 and 11%. And this is the point at which you have the fundamental liquid to be introduced to the distilling process itself. Yeah. Now, in the past, they had used like all these different types of vessels, glass vessels. They had used, uh, in some cases, uh, clay pots. Clay pots are still what are used for the production of mezcal. But in Ireland and in Scotland, they chose copper. Yeah. Copper is very good for this for a number of reasons. It eliminates sulfur compounds, first and foremost. It's highly conductive, yeah. and it's very easy to mold into exactly the shape you need. And the shape of the vessel itself plays a huge role in this. Different countries for different types of distilled spirits have different philosophies that go into the shape. In the case of... I mean, even producer to producer, it'll vary. Yeah. Depending on what you're going for. Yes, but the typical thing that you're going to see is a large, kind of rounded vessel... It's going to have a gooseneck that leads to a large cylinder, which is used in order to cool the evaporated product. Mm-hmm. So so let's get into what is going on in this vessel. You, you are talking about pot stills. I do want to clarify that pot stills and column stills are used in various kinds of whiskey production. Column stills tend to be more for grain whiskey production in most places, and your pot stills, which are typically double pot still distilled, yeah, is more for your single malts normally. Normally, uh, which is even, definitely what even, I'm more familiar with yeah, than, that, than other types. That's even legally mandated in places like Scotland. No kidding. Yeah, if you are buying a single malt scotch, that is a pot still double pot still distilled product. It, it cannot be made in a column still if it's a single malt whiskey. Wow. Yeah. That's actually incredible, knowing while you're pouring this into your glass, you know exactly where this has been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if it's grain for scotch again, it was column distilled. So why is it that this works, though? What What is going on there as far as the reaction? So for both of these processes, and uh, we're not going to really get into the fine details of that because that's probably its own episode for <laughs> both methods of distillation. What you're doing is essentially trying to get alcohol, some water, and congeners out of the wort. Give me a definition for congeners. Congeners are aromatic compounds that will give flavor and aromas to your final new make spirit, which will eventually become your whiskey. So for these methods, you're using heat and conductive materials to heat up the the wart and to start evaporating the compounds that you want again your congeners your alcohol some water and just know that it, you're getting it to evaporate up to a certain point and then go down into a cooling unit to then condense into a new make spirit and this is taking advantage of the fact that alcohol will evaporate much more quickly than water it has yes. a much lower boiling point yeah so once once we have this liquid, what, what are we doing then? Because we obviously, this is not a drinkable product yet. Mm-hmm. We have a distilled liquid with a high concentration of alcohol, but it also has some other compounds in it. Also, again, just to be very clear, we skipped over a lot for distillation just now. Um, oh, boy, yeah. But that that is kind of a decent summary, I would say. So once you have this new make spirit, that's what this product is called once it comes out of your distillation method. It's then going into a cask. Gotcha. Oh, so we are skipping over four shot, middle cut, and faint. Oh, okay. Let, yeah, let's get into that. Because this is when it goes from being a tasty liquid that could kill you to a uh, not not so killy liquid that <laughs> yes. is tasty. So once this liquid has been distilled and you have a huge amount of compounds that are just swirling around in it, the distiller will try and separate it. Yeah. And they will separate it out into four-shot, middle-cut, and faint. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that this is in order to ensure purity. I know that this is order, in order to ensure quality. But why? What, what are the things that they're trying to remove? What are they doing here? Yeah, so whoever's running your, your cuts of the distillate 
is basically looking for a very specific profile that they want to go into the new make spirit. So when you're distilling a spirit, the first things to start blowing off are compounds and alcohol that you don't really want in your final product. So your fusel oils, your methanol, Mm -hmm. and your residues. Yeah. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't taste good. And it could blind you. And it could blind you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you don't want that. There's going to be, again, what's called a cut point, where in newer facilities, there's a machine that basically acts as a switch between pipes. So your heads are going to go down into the pipe that isn't going into what is eventually going to end up in a cask. When you get to where the person running that machine looks and says, okay, we're, we're starting to get into the compounds and the alcohol that we want in our, in our spirits, then he's going to flip a switch and put it into the other pipe. And that's going to be your heart. Your middle cut. Okay. Your middle cut. Oh, okay. Now these terms are starting to make sense. Yes. Uh, your heart or your middle cut. And that is going to be the essence, I guess, of your spirit. Not to make a pun there. Dear Lord. <laughs> Dear Lord. The, yeah. So that is going to be where you are encountering the primary character. So of your, of your new make spirit. So just from a a knowledge of how these dynamics are working as the stuff is coming through these pipes, they're Mm -hmm. able to have the four shot, Mm -hmm. which cuts out the methanol, cuts out these residues. Then they grab that middle cut Mm -hmm. and are able to distinguish that from the fusel oils in the faint. Yeah. That is fascinating. So the fainter the tail, and a lot of this is done by, um, very precise calculations now, and just kind of a general um, expertise of doing it for a while, obviously. So the the tails or the feints, as you said, are going to be, uh, again, more stuff that you just don't really want. A lot of very, as you said, oily compounds, a lot of uh, things that can produce off flavors mm-hmm. in the spirit, just things that you don't really want. And so, again, they're going to make a cut point in between the heart and the feint to then uh, keep that out of your new make spirit. The cut point between these two in particular does vary a lot more than your heads and your heart mm. because some producers do want a heavier, more intense style of whiskey. Some don't, so they'll cut earlier in the process. I get some will cut later to, again, have a, a thicker, more intense new make spirit. So now that we have the heart of this whiskey, this is going to have all of the different compounds all of the different characters that we're really wanting to see start to shine, mm-hmm. but it hasn't quite gotten to the point that it is consumable. It hasn't quite gotten to the pure character that we know as being whiskey. So yeah. what is used in order to finish this profile to get these compounds that characterize whiskey? Oak barrels. Oak or, barrels. Or casks. They're kind of more commonly referred to as casks in whiskey production. Typically, for most varieties of whiskey... There's going to be at least a toast on the barrel. Once we get into more specifics of the styles of whiskey, I'll be mentioning some other kinds of oak barrels that might be being used. But this is going to do very similar to what it does for wine. It's going to allow oxygen interplay. Again, oak is not airtight. It is watertight, so nothing will be leaking out. But there's oxygen interplay that happens there. Depending on how heavily the barrel is toasted, that will impart either more or less flavors. The deeper the char, the more flavor is going to get into the barrels. Also, on on the whole, whiskey barrels are typically, if it's made just for whiskey, they're going to feature a pretty heavy char. Mm -hmm. Old particularly sherry and port barrels are used for whiskey production in a lot of places for your heavier styles Mm -hmm. yeah but those also tend to be uh used for finishing casks that means that it might not see its whole time in that particular cask but if you're finishing with a wine barrel that means that you are taking it out of the original cask and you are then going to be putting it into that cask to get whatever flavor aroma compounds you want out of that particular barrel the reason that Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, what types of wood do we typically see being used? Is it the same ones as wine? Uh, Typically, yeah. Uh, American oak in particular kind of dominates the market right now because we'll get into this. Bourbon barrels cannot be used on a second fill legally. 
So they get recycled by a lot of other, particularly Irish and uh, Scotch producers. Well, and I know that in particular, the method that's used in order to create European oak or French oak mm-hmm. is going to be that they're split, whereas mm-hmm. the American oak is going to be sawed. Yeah. When they're split, the cell walls aren't destroyed. Mm-hmm. So you don't have as much extraction of those more like vanilla compounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you want that. And you really want that, yeah. especially in bourbon. This also kind of gets into the char. So yes, you, you want more extraction of the wood compounds, the lignans, manilins, oak tannins. You want all of that extracted into your whiskey. You also, for the char, want that to extract flavor yes but also if you remember way back in the sake episode i mentioned that sake is typically filtered through a charcoal filter Mm -hmm. charcoal because it is charcoal when you char wood it does turn into a form of char charcoal that will kind of act as a little bit of a filter even in the barrel to remove additional sulfuric compounds and whatnot that you do not want in the final spirit interesting yeah so it's kind of a a dual purpose for the heavier char that these barrels tend to see for whiskey production versus your standard wine barrel if you look at a picture wine barrels are barely toasted compared to whiskey barrels particularly bourbon so what other factors might be influencing the flavor of a whiskey while it's sitting there wherever it is if it's an Mm -hmm. isla or if it's you know in a random field what other influences are are playing a factor in the resulting flavor so i would say this is where again uh, going back to our climate episode we talked about terroir and wines i would say this is kind of the key defining factor of terroir and whiskeys the climate that these barrels are in really impacts the flavor of the final whiskey Mm. and it really particularly in that vein affects the angel share But the angel share, if you don't remember, is uh, since, yes, oxygen gets in, but that also means that things can get out, right? Mm -hmm. So water and alcohol evaporate over time. And the rates at which the ratio of alcohol to water is heavily dependent upon temperature and humidity. So, for example, in Kentucky, where bourbon has historically come from, it is a lot more dry and it's a lot more hot than in scotland which tends to be a lot more damp and cool so for your bourbons this makes a environment where a lot more water compared to alcohol is going to burn off or evaporate out i should say making a more concentrated spirit in terms of its alcohol and kind of that aggressive character Whereas in scotch, it's going to be the exact opposite. More alcohol is actually going to evaporate in that environment versus water. Hmm. And so you actually kind of lose ABV for a lot of scotches. You're also losing a volume of the overall barrel. Yeah, it's like 1.5 to 2% of the barrel itself. In Scotland, yeah. Uh, Again, the temperature really impacts that more than anything. So this really impacts the character of your spirit overall because you know you're going to have a more mellow spirit if it's in this cooler damper environment where more alcohol is burning off more rugged intense in your face if it's more water burning off over time and this also will get into the cost of your year statement spirits in particular if you have a whiskey that has spent 10 20 years in a barrel you've lost a significant portion just by volume of that. And so that's going to be a lot more expensive yeah. than one that's only been aged for the minimum four two years. to three years. Yeah. Like yeah. if you have a four-year whiskey that's been aged in Scotland and it's only lost 1.5 to 2%, imagine that over the course of what can be up to six times the amount. Yes. And again, the oxygen interplay also influences a lot of these flavor compounds. So the longer it's spinning in barrel, that also means typically the more integrated and rounded and complex the final product is going to be. And then after it's been in cask for whatever time the producer wants, off to the bottling facility, most distillers are not bottling their own product. You have companies that do that now oh and just to clarify bottle aging for whiskey is like not a thing it doesn't it's 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 not a thing it does not exist once you take it out of the barrel it is shelf stable and it's finito yeah i will say as with wine and this is just because i'm very paranoid please 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 do not store your whiskey in brightly lit 
areas, yes. particularly in, with in sunlight. Sunlight it just across the board is bad for most drinks. It's also it's- bad for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm a redhead, so I I understand. Yeah. You're actually a little bit red, I noticed. Oh, no, I'm, I'm quite sunburned right yeah. now. <laughs> I, I had a lovely little float down the James, <laughs> and um, even though I reapplied three times with 50 SPF, I ripened like a tomato. Yeah, you're a little rosy right now. Yeah, so that's uh, my rosy disposition. Yeah, but so whatever sunlight does to your skin, imagine that's what it's doing to whatever bottles you have that are exposed to it. Yeah. It, it is not good for any drink, really. That's my only real storage tip. Keep it in a dry, preferably cool, just for consistency's sake, across your your cabinet. Yeah. But yeah, once it's in the bottle, it'll stay basically in the way it was put into that bottle indefinitely. Now, as far as additives, I don't want to go into this too much, but there are sometimes color additives that are put into whiskey just to make them look nice on the shelf. Yeah. And even then, it's typically, at least for your higher quality producers, it's more to keep a color consistency across your bottles than it even really is to make the color deeper in a lot of circumstances. It's literally just an aesthetic thing. And it's it's caramel colors. It's caramel caramel color color. to be specific. Most places, it is illegal to add anything else. Yeah. That's why you need to be very careful about actually making sure the label says whiskey or whatever associated title you're looking for distilled spirit product or Uh, whatever because there are some brands some even particularly large brands that advertise themselves as being a whiskey product but they play some very interesting word games with yeah. the label. Basically, they're anytime not, they're not actually whiskey, and those do have a lot of additives and adjustments made. Yeah, anytime that you see not the product, but it says this product, like cheese product mm-hmm. or something like that, it's more or than liqueur. Like, if you see liqueur on yeah. a whiskey label, that is suspect. Dead ringer. Yeah, Th- that's kind of the the way that whiskey is made in macro. Yes. Now, if we want to go into a lot of different styles, because you know, you get to your ABC store, you're seeing all sorts of labeling. Yeah. You go to uh, your local your local place to drink whiskey or your local bar, and they're going to ask you what your preference is. You probably have one, but I guarantee you, you can't read half the bottle, mm-hmm. uh, the bottle content that's in there. Or you might know kind of what you like generally in a spirit, but you don't know the various kinds and regions that whiskey is made in. So if you order a Isla Scotch and you don't like peat, Boy, you are in for a rough ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna eat that thirty dollar yeah. drink right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so all of these are basic variants on what we just discussed in that whole distilling process. Mm-hmm. But first up, we have Irish. Yes. Now you described this as being the father of all whiskey. We mm-hmm. know that Ireland introduced Scotland to distilling into yeah. whiskey. What? kind of distinguishes this from other styles i think the defining feature is irish whiskey is heavily dependent on blending Mm. this makes it very good for kind of being like an all-around whiskey a lot of your producers are going to be kilning at lower temperatures than say your scotches or your bourbons and so that keeps a lot more of the sweetness of the malts intact Mm. than a hotter kilning temperature will do because it'll you know start to cook more that away and get more into your charred flavors so they want to preserve that sweetness that rounder character the Blend can be a mix of pot stilled and column stilled. The pot stilled are typically malted whiskeys, uh, as with scotch. Your column stills are going to be maize or corn grain whiskeys normally. Oh, also Irish whiskey. If you see a Irish or Scotch or Japanese, typically it is legally mandated that they be made within that country. You're not going to see a Kentucky producer producing Irish scotch or uh, irish whiskey that doesn't exist yeah uh just to be clear so for your single malt irish whiskeys they are triple distilled sometimes and that's going to make like a very 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 clean spirit uh still flavorful still complex obviously depending on the aging that they do on it it's going to be a very you know highly rectified highly refined spirit very Mm. uh very very high quality stuff 
if I'm not mistaken, the idea of blending the different grains together in order to create something that was high quality was a response to a tax that was heavily levied against mm-hmm. grains yeah. by the King of England during the time. So it was kind of a an art through adversity. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a way to diversify what you were producing and to be able to sell it at a cheaper price and not have it taxed as heavily. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, while still maintaining quality. Mm-hmm. And Irish whiskeys are going to have a mandatory minimum three years of aging in the barrel. So actually, taxes lead us kind of to our next little thing, because heavy taxes started being levied against Ireland and Scotland. And this led them to wanting to start to uh, emigrate from Europe to the Americas. And so you started seeing more Irish people, more Scottish people in the 1700s going over to the Americas. Yeah. And that became the foundation for what eventually became the style known as bourbon. Yes. So what would you say is the fundamental difference between bourbon and its ancestor? So the primary difference, I would say, is the aging process and the cask. As I mentioned, bourbon barrels are mandatory virgin barrels, virgin meaning one fill, only for bourbon it cannot have been used for anything else prior heavily charred you are using a heavily charred virgin barrel on your bourbon there is no other option for you in Mm. that regard again a lot of irish and scotch producers will take these barrels off of a producer's hands and use it for their own whiskeys these are getting reused i still don't really like this method from a sustainability standpoint because it requires that you cut down massive amounts of trees every year that i understand can't afford to lose but yeah, I understand the scrutiny, but f- from a sustainability standpoint, it's just like there there has to be another way. Yeah, like there are ways within the wine world where they'll either put you know extra staves inside, yeah. or they'll scrape off the inner layer and then toast again. Scotch producers do that as well, actually. Oh, do they? Once you fill a barrel enough times, it's kind of like a tea bag. It just has diminishing returns. And what they'll do in Scotland, they might do this in Ireland or whatnot. I, I'm not sure. I just finished a, a Scotch certification through the Edinburgh Whiskey Academy. That's why I'm talking about Scotch so much. Congratulations to Gabe. Thank you. That is an accomplishment. I keep going back to Scotch over this episode for that reason. In Scotland, I do know that they will basically refurbish the barrels. They'll scrape off a layer of the wood and reassemble the barrel to then have more extractive flavors available again. I don't know if they do this everywhere, but I do know that they do it in Scotland. I'm assuming Ireland probably is doing that. Japan, I'm not sure. I don't know about Canada either. You know, Japan is starting to use their own oak. Oh, interesting, because they have very different oak trees over there than we do. And okay. they have very refined styles of growing said yes. oak. It's, it's, yeah. I'm very interested in this. So, yeah, the, the casks really set bourbon apart. Bourbon has minimum two years of aging. Rather than three is kind of the standard in a lot of other places, Mm -hmm. but bourbon is so strong that I don't really think it needs the the three years. That's not really, I think, what they're going for in a lot of these styles. Bourbon also, instead of like barley or or wheat being your primary grain, it's going to be a minimum 51% corn in the mash. Good old corn. Good old corn. The founder of our feast. The great American staple in today's um, food economy. Oh, boy. Everything has corn in it. Everything Or corn corn. syrup. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That is definitely what I'm referring to. So minimum 51% corn in the mash bill. Uh, Again, pretty much any other grain is is allowed, but... uh, Well, that makes sense, though, because it is such a high sugar agricultural product. It makes a lot of sense that it would create the more sweet profile that you see in bourbon yeah now contrary to popular belief it is not mandatory legally that bourbon come from kentucky or tennessee it did originally come from kentucky but bourbon can technically be made anywhere in the united states i was unaware that people were under the impression that it was either from kentucky or tennessee it's becoming a lot more common knowledge that that's not the legal definition but a lot of people still think when they hear bourbon kentucky you know or, i'm just kind tennessee. of like thinking that it was like a quote-unquote misunderstood ad from kentucky bourbon where they're just like now remember if it's not kentucky yeah. bourbon well, it's I mean, not bourbon there there's purists as with anything who swear up and down if it's not from kentucky it's not real bourbon sorry 
the lawyers disagree with you on that one. <laughs> you, you can. It's the law. <laughs> I mean, you can think that the producers from there are probably going to be the best. And I think there's an argument to be made there because About, they've been doing yeah. it for the longest, most likely. Well, mm, Prohibition actually interrupted that, but we won't go into that here. Listen to our Prohibition episode. <laughs> it was a good episode. Uh, Yes, it's not mandatory, and there's kind of a, this is its own category, but I'm treating it as a subcategory of bourbon because pretty much all the other requirements are the same, but this is your Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey. Mm -hmm. This has a specific step where it is, from the cask, it is filtered through a sugar maple charcoal, and I believe it's some, it's like a really intense, like 10 foot drip filter if i remember correctly oh wow and it's just allowed to go down through all this charcoal to really um it imparts its own flavor because like i said it is you know sugar maple charcoal so it it is imparting flavor but it's also really rectifying that spirit and and cleaning it up a lot oh i need to be present for this at some point because that just sounds beautiful yeah it's like a river of bourbon flowing through charcoal that just sounds awesome and this is called your lincoln county process this actually is thought to have come from slaves who introduced it to bourbon makers really yeah so there's can you, can there's, you go in do we have time for you to go into that i i didn't read enough about it to really be able to feel uh okay going into this i but that is where it's thought to have come from so a very it's something i actually really would like to get into in a future episode we should definitely get into that if, yeah maybe if we go into if you guys dm us at, <laughs> at laidback lush on instagram or twitter we will get into more of the history of distillation and yeah. specifically whiskey. And this particular method yeah. just sounds I th- amazing. I think we'll do it regardless, but you know, st- I, still. Hey, no, 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 no. You got you to gotta hold it like it's a carrot. <laughs> um, but uh, so moving on from that, though, moving on to the other kind of big American form of whiskey, we have our rye whiskeys. Mm-hmm. This was kind of lost for a while to prohibition good old prohibition yeah it was actually a very popular style before prohibition and it has recently become trendy again all the hipsters are drinking rye whiskey i personally love rye whiskey i don't know what your opinions of it are i enjoy it i know that uh hunter and chase and scott's edition makes one that that i think is pretty good rye whiskey is very similar to bourbon except for a reservoir distillery hunter and chase is the product my bad gosh michael i know so rye whiskey is going to be a minimum 51% of rye grain instead of the corn that you're going to find in bourbon. That's what's going to give it the profile that it has of being spicier, kind of bitter, almost a lot more. Um, ah, it has a je ne sais quoi, as the French say. I, it, it's it, Spicy, I think, is a really good way to put yeah. it. It just has a different character than bourbon. It's still pretty aggressive like bourbon is, yeah. but it's... It's a different kind of aggressive. Yeah, I would say that with with bourbon, you definitely have a lot of those caramel and vanilla. With rye, I get more toffee. Yeah, toffee and like baking spice, uh, some allspice even, and and getting into your more aromatic compounds. Yeah, then which uh, is is a lot of fun actually if yeah. you're using it for cooking in particular. Yep. So then uh, we're, we're going to scotch. We're going to scotch. Hey, what are you looking? Scotch can be broken down into your malt scotch, your grain scotch, and your blended scotch. As just a very simple overview, if you see malt, that's barley. Mm-hmm. If you see grain, that's barley with other grains mixed in. If you see single, so single malt, that is a malt from one distillery. If you see a blended malt, that means that it's blended from multiple distilleries. Yeah. Then your blended scotch is going to be both malts and grain whiskeys, just all blended together. These can get incredibly complex. Irish whiskeys can as well, actually. These blended whiskeys, even in Ireland and in Canada, which we'll be getting into here in a second, these can have like 20 different whiskeys just all blended together from various different producers different mash bills malts what have you just packed into these typically if it's done well enough very high quality Mm -hmm. again uh scotch is kind of known for its peat that that sets it apart i would say from a lot of other regions in the world peat is such a hard note to describe to somebody who's never had it yeah smoky and medicinal are kind of two that i see quite often to describe it smoke if it smells like a campfire, there's probably peat in there. 
that I think covers scotch pretty well overall. And then we have Canadian whiskey. I, I'm not going to lie. I don't really know much about Canadian whiskey. So if you know more than I do, definitely jump in, Michael. But, uh, I have never had a Canadian whiskey. I haven't either, but it's apparently very big. So it's primarily corn and wheat based for most of your Canadian whiskeys. Like Ireland, Canada is very heavy on blending their whiskeys. These do tend to be a much lighter, smoother style. These are used a lot in whiskey cocktail production. So like your old fashions, um, Manhattans, whatnot. These are very good because they're not quite as strong on their individual character as some other forms of whiskey are. They're very good for blending into cocktails. Mm. They are minimum three-year aging. Oh, scotch is also three-year minimum aging. Uh, I forgot to mention that. I will say, it got, kind of going for all of these, a lot of producers go well past your minimum requirement for how long they're aging because they want a quality product. Yeah. I know for scotch, if you see a an age statement, if it's a blended scotch, the age statement is based off of the youngest scotch in that blend. So if you see a five-year, that means five is the absolute youngest in that blend, and there could be older whiskeys going into that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's uniform across all the whiskey industry. I'm assuming it would be. It, that just seems logical to me. Maybe other countries might go off of average age. I know sherry goes off of the average age, not particularly um, the youngest, but sherry is also a lot harder to identify. We'll get into that again in, in a Solera episode down the road. But yeah, a lot of these producers go past their minimum aging requirements. Which is kind of a character of like whiskey in general is that people go hard. Yeah. It's they, they want to get as much out of those barrels as possible. They really want to highlight that character and the character of the area that they're in. Like Isla, they love the fact that the sea breeze gets into the whiskey itself. Yeah. And the air that is getting into the liquid itself plays a role in the profile. So they want that to be present. If it's not present in the product, then, then it's not done yet. Yeah. Canada, lighter, smoother great cocktail blending whiskey and then going into my well actually i will say aside from scotch but uh there's a lot of let's say interplay between these two japan and this actually uh the one that we're drinking right now goes into exactly what we were just talking about uh, the name of this is toki which is the word for time or mm -hmm. or at that time so yeah let's go into japanese whiskey yeah, this some is... of my favorite whiskeys i've ever tried have been japanese they are gabe has had the privilege of trying many well i mean not many many but comparatively speaking they're they're very difficult to find around here i'll say that i was very lucky to go to a winery called ravenwood out in kansas city when i was visiting family last year and of all things, they also have a whiskey tasting room, which is wonderful, that has Japanese whiskeys on the menu, and they were delicious, at least the two that I tried while I was out there. So Japanese whiskey is very young. Because of that, and well, by very young, I mean they started at the turn of last century yeah, to really produce whiskey. So it was like you had Commodore Matthew Perry come in and decide that Japan shouldn't be isolated anymore. Yeah. And he apparently brought like a 110-gallon thing of of whiskey of bourbon actually to the shogun mm -hmm. and they're like okay yeah no we'll start importing this yeah. this is pretty good yeah but it wasn't until you had shinjiro tori and masataka uh, taketsuru that you actually started to see a japanese expression of what whiskey could be mm -hmm. yes and these men they really studied yeah scotch they did both of them go to Scotland or was it? No, no. So Shinjiro, uh, Shinjiro Tori, he was a pharmacist. Okay. And he started getting into port. He he took over the entire port industry inside okay. of Japan, but he was like, I really like whiskey. Yeah. I really want to see whiskey be a thing in Japan, but it hasn't really mm -hmm. caught up. Yeah. So then enter Masataka Taketsuru. He studied yeah. in the University of Glasgow and worked in a bunch of different distilleries. Yeah, he really just threw himself into Scotland so, from, a, from a whiskey making perspective. Exactly. And so Shinjiro was just like, yo, set up a distillery. Let's do this. And they opened up their first whiskey distillery in the turn of the 19th century in Yamazaki, Japan, just south of the area of Hokkaido. Both of these men were brilliant, mm -hmm. absolutely brilliant, and ended up founding Suntory, which is the type of whiskey that we're doing, as well as I want to say that it's it's Nikia Suntory. 
Suntori. Yeah, suntory, suntory, I say, is in my, is suntory. Um, to this day, it's some of the, some of the best stuff. It's competitive with whiskey across the world. It's actually outdone a lot of historically internationally recognized mm-hmm. Scotch production facilities. They modeled it after that and they also modeled it after what they believe to be Japanese taste. Yeah. So. Let, it was let, incredible. Let's get into that. Let's let's yeah. get into what separates Japanese whiskey kind of from the rest of the market. A, the price point. <laughs> yeah, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. We were actually lucky enough. Sun, uh, Suntori is actually doing a special right now, from what I understand, where their Tolki is going to be – I don't know what the law is as far as alcohol prices. Well, let's just say that I didn't have to break a 50 yeah. in order to purchase this. For a lot of Japanese whiskeys, particularly the more sought-after ones, you are paying hundreds. Oh, holy yeah. hell. It's also a lot of it is a supply and demand issue. Japan, for as big as their industry is getting, they are still – I mean, they're a small country that has tapped into a global market. Yeah. And they're a newer industry in terms of – if you compare it to bourbon and scotch and all these other places. Well, and especially in Yamazaki, they're using natural resources. A lot of these groups, they're using spring water. And, yeah. and that's the reason why they chose Yamazaki in mm-hmm. the first place. You can't just be tapping that yeah. to distribute internationally on a natural resource. Yeah. So there's there's limitations to how much they can produce. That is really jacking up their prices because collectors love Japanese whiskey. As well they should. Yeah, as well they should. So from a flavor profile perspective, though, it, Japan, we were kind of discussing this because uh, we were about to do a tasting of this Suntori, Suntori, sorry. And we were kind of discussing before the episode about what makes Japanese whiskey Japanese whiskey. For me, Japanese whiskey just tends to have a very refined nose. It tends to have some very prominent floral aromatics, particularly white florals. It can showcase some tropical fruits sometimes, depending on what brand and producer you're doing. From a macro perspective, there isn't really like a style that's mandated by law. In Japan, there's still a lot of experimentation going on between producers about what works in Japan, what doesn't. But what you can typically always find in Japanese whiskey is a very high level of refinement. Mm. And I think that kind of plays into what you were saying that, you know, we're talking about the Japanese taste. The Japanese taste does tend to be very... We want refinement, we want clear, defined flavor profiles and aromas, and... Some of those need to be delicate. Delicate, clean. Uh, Japanese whiskey tends to be very clean. It's kind of almost like the inverse of bourbon, I would say. I I still love bourbon, don't get me wrong, but bourbon is so, like, in your face and whatever. And Japanese whiskey is really more about, like, inviting you to explore the whiskey itself, I would say. Yeah. And kind of dig into it. You could almost see it as almost being more along the philosophy of tea. Yeah. Or even sake, as far as refinement Mm -hmm. is concerned. Yes. And a big thing that is very different between this industry and, say, the Scotch or the Irish whiskey industry is blending is done only within brands. Now, a brand might own several distilleries, so their blended whiskeys might have more of a variety in terms of where they're distilling from, but they don't share those whiskeys with other brands for blending like you will find in Scotland or Ireland. So just know if you see a blended whiskey, it's still all coming from the same people at the end of the day, even if they own distilleries in multiple locations. So with that, as we're getting through all of this, we wanted to actually do a small tasting of this lovely Sunter Suntori whiskey. Having to really fight our American yeah, I'm, tendencies I'm, I am. I am having to flex pretty hard against my American accent right now. Yeah. Strangely enough, my uh, Japanese teacher was actually from an area known for being the comedy accent. <laughs> I, I've I've always so instead of being like. Ohio gozaimasu. It's Ohio gozaimasu. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. just like, well, if I ever move to Japan, I'll it's just have to a be dialect over there, if I remember correctly. Pretty much. Now, I want to shout out McCormick's for this portion because they actually, while I was there, were able to teach me a little bit more about whiskey tasting than I previously knew. So the first sip that you're going to have, you want to make it a small sip. Second sip, again, is going to be pretty small. And these are just to basically prime your palate. Yeah. You don't want to get real strong, deep whiffs of aroma out of whiskey. Now, Gabe and I are going to be using snifter glasses today. 
I would recommend that at the very least because I think that it concentrates the aromatic compounds rather well. The third sip is when you're really going to get some stuff. I like to hold myself at a distance Mm -hmm. when I'm smelling whiskey from the glass because otherwise you're going to have the alcohol burning your nose. Also, don't do long sniffs. Don't go. (sighs) Definitely take very short, just... um. Like half almost, seconds. Almost like you're smelling something stinky. Obviously, you're not smelling something stinky, but think of that mode of of smelling where you're not taking these long gasps of air because, like you said, you will anesthetize your nose if you're not careful. Yeah, it's it's not going to be great. So what are you getting off of this? Uh, I know that we mentioned earlier, you mentioned the fact that you're getting some of those white floral notes. Mm-hmm. I'm I, getting... I got some blueberry uh, blossom yeah. from it. Starting to get into some gardenia, I'm still blanking on what flower. There was a flower earlier that I've, I've been trying to rack my brain to remember, and it's just not coming to mind. But it's starting to get into kind of that gardenia territory. There is a, a good amount of, of moving from florals, caramel and vanilla character on here. The character is much less charred. It's not burnt sugar. It, it's not like toffee. It's more... Like I was saying earlier, almost like a vanilla caramel meringue, yeah. almost where it's a lot lighter, it's a lot softer, like than, a soft sugar cane. Yeah, it, it, it's not it's not burnt. It's just kind of starting to caramelize, really. Yeah, and I would say that saying that it's more on the creamy than caramelized side is mm-hmm. is like a caramel cream, even. Yeah, there's definitely some fruit going on. Yeah, I'm still trying to I identify them. I would definitely say some green apples. Some oranges, maybe even some grapefruit, like a like a ruby red grapefruit. Not quite the tartness of a of a you know just straight up grapefruit, but that ruby red kind of sweetness. I can definitely see that. Another thing that you can do while you're tasting is after you're done drinking the glass, leave just a teensy tiny bit at the bottom of the glass. Let that sit for a minute, and it'll actually burn off the alcohols, and that allows for the aroma to kind of hit your nose without having it being burned as quickly. This is another thing that uh, McCormick's brought up to me. I was tracing the Ardbeck Black uh, and some of the uh, – oh, gosh. You said it earlier. The the Scotch, um, the heavily peated Scotch. Le- Lefroy. Lefroy. Yeah. I was trying some of those as well and just leaving them in the glass, mm-hmm. letting them sit there. Luckily, he allowed me to use several glasses. It was an amazing experience. You really get a lot of the fruit, and it's not burning my nose because my nose, in particular, is very sensitive to alcohol, as is mine. There's also I'm I'm really struggling to identify the melon. I was gonna say I melon. really I really don't want to go into something as generic as like Asian melon because there are many melons out of Asia, but that's kind of the closest thing because it's not honeydew and it's not cantaloupe, but yeah. it's, it's a very solidly melon flavor that I know from particularly Asian candies that is present here yeah if you've ever had high chew there's a flavor in here that kind of kind of sits there mm-hmm. like the uh like the orange high chew yeah so uh, there's I think, also a good deal of spice mm-hmm. on this and, and they're they are sweeter spices i would say yeah kind of like your sweet baking spices but um yeah definitely definitely a very a refined style of whiskey overall there's a little bit of smokiness going on in your glass but a very sweet smoke, almost like yeah. a barbecue. Yeah, like if you were smoking something and either like mess oak chips yeah. that are being smoked, yeah, or even cherry. Actually, wood. cherry wood is yeah. exactly what that is. Like if you smell that, and then I actually happen to have some some burnt cherry wood on hand right now. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's right there. It is in that glass. That's how you know I have a good nose. I was able to call that immediately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is a very this is laid back lush where Gabe brags about his. I'm very... just so educated. <laughs> he he actually has very valid claims to this, but I'm still going to tease him about it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I I mean, I am joking. I I, I hate being. He doesn't have to be. I hate being pretentious about that kind of thing. But no, but uh, really, this is like straight up Sakura blossoms and mm-hmm. cherry uh, smoked barbecue. Yeah, so very refined. I will say. Compared to some of the other ones I've tried, this is actually a little bit more on the basic end, which is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that is a bad thing at all, but uh, I can tell that this is one of the more kind of base level, I'm assuming, whiskeys that this brand is putting out. This is, I would say, kind of a, a good baseline for Japanese whiskey. Yeah. 
everything that we're saying in a higher quality Japanese whiskey, even though it will run you a lot more money, I'm sure, just know that this is kind of the jumping off point. And you're probably going to find even more. Some of the ones that I've tried have been much more floral. Mm -hmm. I have uh, the Nika coffee grain whiskey. He actually is, got that for me for my birthday, and yeah, it was delicious. That is much more on your like caramelized, sweet, malty, darker kind of um, not dark in a, in the same way bourbon is dark, but dark in the way of uh, heavier, denser, more concentrated, sugary almost character. The there's more tropical fruit on that one as well, I would say, than this one overall. Yeah, this is pretty delicate by comparison. Yeah, but some of them have gone in the complete opposite direction where they're just highly floral, as I said. Lots of light aromas, light flavors going on. Uh, actually, let me uh, let me give this a taste and give you more of the mouthfeel going on. So for a whiskey, this is actually fairly light-bodied, I would say. Absolutely. The finish is really nice. That meringue kind of flavor is what really lingers for me personally, and some of that that melon and apple really, really yeah. kind of sit on the back of the palate, I think. I would also say that there's a good deal of spice in that finish that's just like mm -hmm. giving some character to the meringue, yeah. giving some character to the apple. It's more of a backbone, I would say, than something very prominent on the yeah. palate. But it, yeah, it's there Just for context sure. and character. And uh, once you breathe out, that kind of smoky flavor does tend to come forward a little bit. Yeah, the retro nasal is very pleasant. So highly recommend the Suntori Whiskey Toki while it is available. Uh, also definitely recommend checking out McCormick's. And the highest recommendation that I can give you is to follow us at Laidback Lush <laughs> on Instagram and Twitter if you haven't done so already. Uh, I've, I've oh said that like three or four times now. <laughs> uh, we really appreciate you guys, our listeners. We love doing this. If you have any questions or if you have anything that you would love to see us do in a future episode, Eventually, once we get some better equipment, we would love to be able to start recording these live and sharing them as videos. Next Let's get week. better mics first <laughs> before yeah. we move on to video. Yeah, no, I don't want to bother with cameras until we get better mics. We literally spent around a half hour today <laughs> just trying to get our mics to work. So until then, I've been Michael. I have been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>